0: In recent years, people have been asking the question, what went wrong with Islamic civilization? How did it lose its place as the world leader in science and technology and philosophy? Well, today we come to the man who is solely to blame for that. One man who wrote a book that single-handedly brought down Islamic civilization. Or did he? Well, that's a popular story out there, and we're going to see if that is actually the case. In fact, the popular physicist and television host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, let me say, before we go any further, I really like a lot, and I enjoy his programs, and I have a lot of respect for him, but he blamed the collapse of the, quote, entire intellectual foundation of Islamic civilization, which he said has not recovered since on the work of the 12th century scholar Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. This was in a speech, by the way, which you can find on YouTube and has a lot of views, which includes pictures of the Twin Towers being struck on September 11, 2001. According to Dr. Tyson, al-Ghazali taught that, quote, mathematics is the work of the devil, so that, quote, Revelation replaced investigation. And those are his quotes and not Al-ghazali's quotes. Well, that's a pretty heavy charge to level against anybody. Now, I've been blamed of a lot of stuff over the years, but the destruction of an entire civilization, I've never faced that one. And so as much as I love Dr. Tyson and all that he's done to spur interest in science among a generation, Can we really blame the entire decline of Islamic science on one philosopher? Well, we'll see if that's the case, so please stay tuned today. Okay, Welcome back. Well, today we have a very heavy subject. In fact, it's even a trial, as we've indicated. Is one man, this al-Ghazali, responsible for the decline of Islamic science, and some might say Islamic civilization as a whole? Well, that's what we're going to talk about, and that's what we're going to find out. Now, by the way, before I get a lot of hate mail here from people who are fans of Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, let me say I'm a big fan also. I love the work he does. I love his shows, and I really love the way he has excited a generation of young people to physics and shown them how cool this can be. But I have to say, when it comes to this issue of Islamic science and the role of al-Ghazali, that this is a pretty heavy rap that he's leveling. And If you want to find out where I'm getting this from, uh, there's actually a YouTube video out there and it's called The Intellectual Collapse of Islam and it's of a very popular lecture that Dr. Tyson gave. Now, he is obviously a brilliant man who understands concepts that are way beyond anything that I could ever understand. And I particularly admire Dr. Tyson because he's one of these geniuses who can take these incredibly difficult concepts like astrophysics and explain them to kids and have them make sense. But I think this does illustrate how people can have such complex ideas on certain subjects. Understand that something like the universe is a very complex system that defies simple explanations. But then when we look at something like Islamic society, we can boil it down very simply and be able to accept a simple explanation like everything was great, then one guy wrote a book and everything went downhill. And this is something that's very common when people talk about Islam or the Middle East. Other things may be very complex, but um, they seem to have very simple explanations for what went on. So we're going to try today to go beyond that simplicity. But the fact is, he isn't the only one. In fact, many scholars who have more of a background in Islamic history have thrown the same accusation, more or less, at Al Ghazali. In fact, a good friend of mine, who's a scholar of Arabic and has been for over 30 years, uh, he's written a book on the rise of, quote, fundamentalism, and his opinion I do respect. He blames al-Ghazali and ibn Taymiyyah, a person we're also going to talk about in the future in a different episode, for the fall of Islamic intellectualism altogether. Now, granted, his explanation for that is a lot more nuanced and a lot more detailed than what we get on that YouTube video. But he, like a lot of people, does believe that Al Ghazali deserves some responsibility. So, did one philosopher, whom to be honest, wrote about things that most people in the 12th century, like most people today, really couldn't understand and probably didn't care about, did he really cause hundreds of leading scientists to pack up shop and call it quits? And then consider that this guy was basically a nobody. He started out from nothing. It wasn't like he was a powerful politician or military leader. He started out as nothing, but he wrote one book and then everybody decided that they had to stop doing science because some person named Al-Ghazali says we have to. Well, I think if you've been following this podcast at all, you probably know what the answer is going to be. Al-Ghazali, like everyone else we've seen so far, was a product of his times. And by the way, when we get to talk about Ibn Taymiyyah, who was generally blamed for the rise of jihadism and Islamic terrorism, he gets an even bigger rap for essentially voicing what are some of the attitudes of his times. But is Al-Ghazali... Is he really the man who doomed this? I mean, despite the way Dr. Tyson makes it sound, he was one of many voices at the same time promoting the same ideas. So did al-Ghazali really cause the end of the golden age of Islam? Of course, you know, the answer is going to be no. But did he express a shift in attitudes that were long in coming and long in taking an effect that would transform the intellectual world of the Muslims? Absolutely. Then throw in a few centuries of crusades, a Mongol invasion, and you're well on your way to explaining the change. So let's actually take a look at al-Ghazali and try and get past the simplification and see what is actually going on with this guy. else we've discussed in this series. El ghazalis life is really a reflection of his times, and it also reflects what was possible in his world. He was born into a poor family in Tus, which is located in present-day Iran in the year 1058. Now, if you've never heard of that city, don't feel bad. On a list of the Muslim cities that were flourishing at the time, Baghdad, Cairo, Cordoba, Medina, Damascus, Fez, and so on, you'd have to go pretty far down on the list to find Tus. It's a relatively minor place in the region of Khorasan, which is probably best remembered in history for being horribly sacked by Genghis Khan in the 13th century. The fact that a poor kid, a nobody, from this backwater town could end up teaching in the most prestigious school in Baghdad, though, is a testament to the level of civilization in the Muslim world at the time. It's also a testament to the fact, though, that this guy did not rise to prominence because he had ideas that no one else was espousing. Again, I think the fact that he rose from such humble origins to such prominence shows the fact that he did reflect his times, and he did espouse ideas that fit very well with the conditions of his time. Well, as we mentioned, al-Ghazali was poor, and from an undistinguished family. We know very little about them, and we really have to guess. We guess from his name, Ghazali. In Arabic, that means one who spins wool, and so we assume that's what his father did for a living. Just like someone who was named carpenter, we assume that they were a carpenter. And, as in Western Europe, your destiny was often your heritage. His father was also a Sufi, a term that we've mentioned before, a popular form of Islamic mysticism that stresses a personal unification with God. Now, that would be enormously popular in al-Ghazali's life, as we'll see. But his father died when he and his brother Ahmed were young, and Ahmed is going to go on to fame in his own right. Now let's just stop for a moment here and consider that this is the beginning of the second millennium. We're talking about 1000 A.D., when Europe is just beginning to emerge from the Dark Ages into early feudalism. Now imagine what kind of a future a poor orphan in a backwater town in France or Britain would have at the time, and it sounds pretty bleak. The fact that he rises to prominence is an indicator of the opportunities at the time, and that this society was, to a large degree, a meritocracy. Now, we've seen this story repeated over and over again in this series, about people who come from humble origins, but because they've got a lot of talent, they rise to the top. And that's what's going to happen with al-Ghazali. Well, because his father died, Al-Ghazali and his brother were placed in the care of a local Sufi lodge. Now, as we said, Sufism was, and it still is, very popular among the working classes at the local level, kind of the way fraternal lodges have been at times in the West, they're they're less so. But think of like the Elks' Lodge and the Knights of Columbus and so forth. The senior Al-Ghazali, the man who we think was a wool spinner, probably had friends among the smiths and craftsmen of the Lodge, and so they took in his two children. And this also testifies to the social importance of Sufism. I mean, it's not just a religious, spiritual thing. Yes, it's that, but this becomes really the backbone of your social organization, to the extent of if you die, your kids are essentially adopted by the Sufi Lodge. From there, both were... Placed in a local madrasa which is a school and they began to get a Muslim education under a local teacher of fiqh which is Islamic jurisprudence. Now schools like mosques and hospitals and other religious institutions were supported by what we call waqfs and these are permanent religious charitable endowments that are administered by the state. So this means that an orphan could go to a place like that live and study and get a free education. Now, this is a pretty good social system, again, if we compare it with Europe in the year 1000. Some modern scholars have questioned the authenticity of this narrative, but it does make a nice rags-to-riches tale. But in any case, we know Al-Ghazali's origins had to be pretty humble because we don't have a lot of information after them. But everything that happens after the city of Tus is better documented. What's more important, though, is this type of narrative, whether it's exactly what happened to al-Ghazali or not, was seen, and is still seen as, what was possible in the society of the time. So, both al-Ghazali and his brother Ahmed were gifted students. Uh, Ahmed would be promoted to study with a well-known Sufi, and eventually he would become one of the leading Sufi mystics of his day. Abu Hamid took a different path. From Tus we know that he and another uh, a number of promising students were sent to the city of Nishapur, which was the capital of Khorasan, to study with the scholar Al-Juwaini, who was one of the most respected scholars in the Abbasid caliphate at the time. Al-Juwaini had taught in Mecca and Medina, and he made a name for himself as Imam al haramein Now, al Haramain. Uh, When you hear these, this means the two holy sites, and that always refers to Mecca and Medina. He's Imam al-Harmayn, meaning he's the imam of the two holy sites. So that is a pretty impressive title for the time. Al-Jawaini's madrasa was associated with the Nizami madrasa in the capital Baghdad. And this was one of the first uh, really large school systems that begins to develop. And it develops under these Seljuk Turks, who we discussed earlier. The Nizami uh, schools become very important. Now, there is a famous anecdote out there where El juani read his pupil's work and he declared that El ghazali surpassed even him. And whether that's exactly what happened or not, we know that al-Jawaini was so impressed uh, that he recommended that al-Ghazali be sent to the Nizami school in Baghdad. This is like the flagship school of this system. And he would eventually be appointed by the Seljuk Sultan as its chief instructor. Now remember, we still have an Abbasid, Khalif, but the Seljuk Turks are basically running things. Well, just looking at that story so far, you see an extensive education system and a general meritocracy. And this was typical of the Muslim world at the time. A poor orphan could work his way up through a system of free schools to the highest educational post in the land by the age of 33 on the basis of his talent. And you see how well connected these schools are. This mobility, which brought al-Jawaini from northern Iran to Mecca and back again, and took al-Ghazali from Khorasan to Baghdad, and then eventually on to Damascus, Jerusalem, and Mecca, this was pretty characteristic of the Muslim world. But it was really nothing compared to the mobility that later Islamic scholars, like Ibn Khaldun, who served from Spain to Egypt, or Ibn Battuta, A Moroccan jurist who earned appointments in India and embassies to China. Well, how did these people travel? they had to join merchant caravans or Hajj caravans, the pilgrimage caravans. And this was um, fairly easy to do if you were a qualified Islamic scholar because these large Hajj caravans or these large merchant caravans, they needed the services of qualified Muslim jurists and Imams. Remember, they're all Muslims and they're going to be traveling for a long time, so they have to conduct religious rituals. And so they would take with them A a jurist or a Qadi. Well, that meritocracy is a remarkable thing in itself, but it means that a poor kid like uh, al-Ghazali could find a way to travel uh, around the world essentially of his time and go to the capitals that he needs to go to on the basis of his skill and knowledge in Islamic law. But there's also another thing we have to get from this. Yes, it's a meritocracy, and he's being promoted based on his skills. But these caravans are not going to hire someone who is espousing ideas that they don't agree with. So, again, to keep going back to this point, Dr. Tyson's idea that this guy had ideas that were totally out of sync with the rest of society and by himself brought down Islamic society, it just doesn't pass. There's no way that al-Ghazali could have moved around and earned the appointments that he did and being supported the way he was if his ideas were out of sync with everybody else's. So anyway, enough of that point. But what kind of education did el-Ghazali actually receive? Well, we know a great deal about this because he was not exactly humble about it. And that is something you have seen repeated uh, throughout these stories. Some of these great scholars are really not humble people. Uh, Ibn Sina is certainly uh, probably the least humble person out there. So when uh, Al-Ghazali was writing to the sultan and you know basically promoting himself and selling his resume he describes himself as quote having dived into the sea of religious scholarship such that he reached a point where his words were beyond the understanding of most contemporaries quote that's what he said I mean, get the idea. I'm so smart, most people can't even understand me. Okay, you know, that's a pretty humble thing to say. In fact, he was even known to be pretty arrogant towards his teacher, El Eljuani, who was the biggest name of the time. So we have a guy who's very proud of himself. Well, the education that he would get at the Nizamiya school focused primarily on Islamic law, on the Quran, on the Hadith, and with that you had to study the Arabic language, but they also studied philosophy and math, and it would primarily be in philosophy and theology, and particularly the comparison of the two in which Al-Ghazali would excel. But it's significant to note, also, that the Nizamiya curriculum was expanded after al-Ghazali's time to include the natural sciences as well, so chemistry and physics and such. And al-Ghazali was the lead teacher there. So the idea that he nailed the coffin on Islamic science, number one, it's not backed up by what he actually wrote. If you look beyond the, the one book that Dr. Tyson cites, he wrote extensively on natural sciences. But secondly, he expanded the teaching of the natural sciences. So, I mean, he did not kill chemistry and physics, uh, despite what uh, people may say. Okay, so where does this claim about al-Ghazali and the decline of Islamic learning come from? Well, first off, it's important to clarify that Al Ghazali's dispute was with philosophy rather than natural sciences. That's where he really had the issue. And the guy he really took it up with was Ibn Sina, who of course is dead by this time, but Ibn Sina was the great towering figure, particularly in philosophy. And so this is what al-Ghazali had the issue with. And as we discussed, uh, Ibn Sina had the idea that philosophy and logic had no bounds. There was nothing in religion that you couldn't explain by using philosophy and logic. This is what al-Ghazali is really going to have an issue with. So his attack was not on what we would call the, quote, hard sciences, the chemistry, physics, astronomy, and so forth. In fact, uh, he emphasized these, he promoted them, and he helped expand them. So it's very likely that what uh, Dr. Tyson is doing and what others are doing is they're generalizing from El Ghazali's attack on the philosophers, which he definitely did do, to assume that he had a general antipathy to learning as a whole. So, if that's the case, we have to look at what was actually Al Ghazali's issue with philosophy. But before we do this, I mean, before we move on from this point, I want to make it very clear that this guy never had an issue with hard sciences, with, with medicine, with chemistry, with physics. He, he never did. So, no matter what else we're going to blame him for, you might try to blame him for the demise of philosophy. There's just no basis on which you can blame him for the demise of, I mean, essentially the things that he is blamed for in that YouTube video that I mentioned. So, if we're going to talk about what his issue with philosophy is, we have to look at the political situation of the day. So, although we like to talk about the 500-year golden age of the Abbasid Caliphate, and, you know, we do this on this show, it's a great grabber, it's a great attention-getter, this is not exactly accurate. As is often the case on closer examination, that 500-year period going from the beginning of the Abbasid Caliphate in 750 to its demise uh, shortly after 1250, 1258 actually, as we've seen, that was full of fragmentation, rebellion, invasion, long periods in which we had caliphs who were basically figureheads. And in fact, the last of the Abbasid Caliphs actually spent their time in exile in Cairo as, you know, quote, guests of the Mamluks who ruled there. I mean, so they were not only figureheads, they were essentially figureheads who were living in a, a foreign capital and being, I mean, held basically as like birds in a cage. So the 11th century into which El Ghazali was born was another period of occupation, uh, but it's a very significant one. In this case, it's the Seljuk Turks, who were dominating and running things. Now, the Seljuks are a dynasty that deserve a lot more attention than they tend to get in the history books. We talked about them in the previous episode. But to understand their importance, let's look again at the Sunni-Shia split and see where they fit in. Well, the 10th century was not exactly a good one for the Sunni Muslim world. and was certainly not a good one for the Abbasids. In fact, if you were sitting in the 10th century and taking bets about which branch of Islam was going to dominate, uh, smart money was probably on the Shia at that time. The Shiite Fatimids originally came from Morocco. I mean, originally they came from Damascus, through Morocco, had set up a caliphate headquartered in Cairo that controlled everything from the western part of the Arabian Peninsula all the way through North Africa. And Cairo is going to grow to become the most important city in the Middle East. It will grow to become the largest city in the world um, shortly thereafter. The Fatimids were Ismaili. This is a branch of Shia that's separate from the Twelver Shia, which today is the largest Shiite sect. And that's the main sect in Iran and Iraq today. Meanwhile, the rest of the Abbasid state had declined into a collection of more or less autonomous emirates, basically princedoms, which paid lip service to the Abbasid caliph and used them when when they needed the Abbasid caliph. But that was basically it. Eventually... In the century previous to Al-Ghazali's time, uh, even this heartland, the area around Iraq and Iran, would be taken over by a Twelver Shiite dynasty of Persian origin called the Buyids. So, for over a century, the Shiite Buyids controlled most of current-day Iraq and Iran, and they kept the Abbasid caliphs under their thumbs. So we've got the West being controlled by the Shiite Fatimids, we've got the East being controlled by the Shiite Buyids. I mean, it kind of looks like Shiite is going to go on to be the dominant uh, sect. Well, the detailed situation is really much more complicated than that, but it's not the details we want to focus on. The key point here is that by the mid-11th century, the Sunni Muslim Empire, which had been centered on the Abbasids, was fragmented and largely ineffective. We've talked about both the Fatimids and the Buyids in recent episodes, but just to revise a little bit, the Buyids revived ancient Persian traditions, and even coming to the point where the leader of the Buyids adopted the title Shahanshah, which means King of Kings for himself, and the culture became extremely uh, Persian. Meanwhile, Baghdad's importance as a center a center of intellectual activity, it devolved and it became more of a provincial capital. Meanwhile, Cairo is growing to great heights. Cordoba uh, in the east is growing. And so Baghdad is really losing a lot of its position. Moreover, a lot of the activity in the scholarship that we're seeing was pointedly Shiite in nature. So it looks like the Sunni Abbasid world is on the ropes. Well, That was true for a while, but all this is to change with the arrival of the Seljuks. The Seljuks were Turkish people originally from Central Asia, and we've been watching this over several episodes where we're seeing the general migration of nomadic peoples, particularly the Turks, from Central Asia into the Middle East, and it will continue, and in fact, it's going to become even more important in the centuries that follow. Like many of the invaders that came into the Middle East, the Seljuks were originally pagan, but they converted to Islam after contact with the Muslim states in Greater Persia. And uh, specifically, it was Seljuk himself, for whom the dynasty is named, who is said to have been converted to Islam about 950. By the mid-11th century, they had a reputation as fierce warriors. Now, as you've also noticed over several episodes in the past, the reason that Turkish influence begins to grow, particularly in the Sunni Abbasid world, is that more and more the caliphs were using Turks to be the basis of their military. They had a reputation for being great fighters, they were very mobile, we know they were horse-based, what we would call Calvary today, and that's really important if you need to be sending them out to deal with trouble in far-flung places of your empire. But the fact that they were new converts to Islam was also very appealing. They were converted basically by the Abbasids, and so they adopted their understanding of Islam from the Abbasids, and so they were essentially trained to be strict Sunni Muslims. Remember, The main problem that the Abbasids have at the time they begin importing these Turkish military forces is with Shiite rebellions. And so you have these newcomers coming in. They're essentially blank slates in the the sense that they're new converts to Islam. They're great warriors, and so you're going to train them up to be strict Sunni Muslims. And that's what happens. The problem is, as anyone knows, when you outsource your military or any time your military is not a a real representation of your society, uh, you can expect to lose control of it, and they will eventually take over, and that is no surprise here, any more than it was a surprise in Ming Dynasty China, let's say. So, by the year 1055, the Seljuk leader, Turgul Bey, who has become so powerful And he sees the Abbasid state becoming so weak and becoming dominated by Ali Shia, uh, decides to take over. He essentially liberates Baghdad in the year 1055. Now, this should not be seen strictly as a power grab. Remember, he is a devout, enthusiastic, zealous Sunni Muslim, and he sees the essentially Sunni leader, the Abbasid Caliph, being dominated, being manipulated by, you know, what he sees as heretics, essentially, and so he believes he's doing a great thing by taking over. The other thing, of course, is Toril is known for being a very strong leader, and for having a very tight control on his troops and on his state such that it is, and he sees the total disintegration of the Abbasid Empire. Well, a lot of tribes and a lot of princes had come and gone, and their power had waxed and waned, but the Seljuks really established a strong state, and they are there to stay. The Seljuk state would become huge. It would stretch from modern-day Turkey, and they take over half of Turkey with a, a resounding defeat of the Byzantines. It stretches all the way to Afghanistan and down into the Persian Gulf. They bring unity to this state. Um, Not only do they defeat the Byzantine Empire, but they threaten it so greatly that this is really the spur for the Crusades. And we tend to think of the Crusaders as attacking the Arab world, but it's really the Turks that they have come to fight. Well, these conflicts will shape the Seljuk state, but the most influential of them was definitely the Shiite threat. Although the Seljuks expelled the Shi'ite Buyids, they continued to wrestle with the Fatimids for leadership of the Muslim world. And so this solidifies the idea among the Seljuks that the Shi'ites are the bad guys and they are the defender of the Sunni Muslim world. By this time, there are actually two caliphs, one in Cairo, who's a Shi'ite, and really a much weaker one in Baghdad. And the the Islamic world has continued to fragment. So because of this, the Seljuk Turkish sultan, and literally sultan means one who holds power, the person who has power. So it's not like something like a khalif who is seen as the, quote, successor to the prophet. But the Seljuk sultan really sees that he has to step in and fill this gap. Well, if he didn't have enough inspiration to do this, there was a major Ismaili Shiite insurrection within the Abbasid state. And this was led by a former agent of the Fatimids, who eventually broke off and formed his own subset. Now, you may not have ever heard of this man, whose name was Hassan al-Sabah, but everyone has heard of the group that he led. Uh, They were known for their habit of consuming hashish, before conducting their terrorist strikes, and that fact has been disputed uh, probably since the first time it was noticed, but they become known for this word hashish. They are the hashashin, or as this name has been Romanized, the assassins. This is where the word comes from. Now, their name did not become synonymous with well-planned political murders for nothing, If they name the word assassin after you, uh, that means that you're doing some pretty effective killing. And they become famous for their use of poison to kill leading members of the Seljuk state, which is essentially the main Sunni force out there. Now... That's what they're famous for, but actually the Hashashin, or the assassins as they're known, spent most of their time spreading their doctrines of their version of Ismaili Shiism. Now, while Ismaili is a branch of Shia, uh, Hassan al-Sabah has his own interpretation of this, which differs from the Fatimids. Uh, I mean, actually differs uh, substantially enough that he breaks from them and they disown him. Now, we really shouldn't downplay this threat. Half the Muslim world is already under the control of a Shi'ite caliphate which is stronger than the one in Baghdad. You have the Ismailis who are internal, who are really this terrorist threat which is so effective. They're out there poisoning people and you really don't have the technology to neutralize that, and so there's a threat within what is remaining of the Abbasid piece of the state. So this is the situation in which the Seljuks find themselves. This is the situation in which al-Ghazali is born. And this is the situation into which his ideas are going to become popular and essentially going to become the doctrine of the state when he becomes the, the head teacher of their centralized school. Well, the Seljuks, despite their military prowess, which was very great, uh, they used education as a major part of their effort to suppress the Shiite influence or to combat the Shiite influence, they built the first truly organized system of Sunni madrasas. And these, as we mentioned, were the Nizamiya madrasas. Now the word Nizam, and it's actually Nizam in Arabic, uh, refers to a system. Now this doesn't refer to the systemization of the schools, although it's a good name for them, they were actually very systemized, so the fact that they're called Nizamiya is a good name for them. But the name actually comes from the name of the man who established the system, and he is the Seljuk vizier, which is basically a prime minister, and his name is Nizam al-Mulk. Now this is an honorific title, that's not the, the name he was born with. But it means essentially the order of the realm. Now, this is a testament to the kind of renewal and the kind of centralized organization that the uh, Seljuks are bringing. This man is known as Nidam, essentially the system. I mean, I am order. Okay, that's pretty uh, intense. And so when he creates this school system, it's named after him. So it's not specifically named for the fact that it is a systematic uh, organization of schools but look it's named after the guy who wants to be called the system now nizam al-mulk as great as he was and he was actually a, a very very effective leader he is killed by the assassins himself so if there was any doubt about the severity of the threat or if the Seljuks needed any more encouragement to crack down on the Shia, this was it. So some scholars out there blame the Nizamiya system rather than al-Ghazali himself for the decline of Muslim learning. Uh, And that makes a little bit more sense. He is the man who rises to control this system, uh, this very large, interconnected, and very standardized system, uh, and he prospers in it, and so, if we take his ideas to be the, the cause of the decline of Islamic science, if that's what um, some people claim, then it's probably the context, the type of school system in which he grows, probably has a bigger influence. But anyway, we have to remember that these madrasas existed to combat Shiite doctrine, which, as they saw it, was heresy. And to raise up generations of teachers and imams who could spread and ensure Sunni orthodoxy. So this was not the place to sit down and debate the relative merits of Sunni versus Shia and have a wonderful open discussion. Now other scholars point out that natural sciences had always been taught in separate venues from the religious sciences, and therefore that the Seljuks Establishing religious schools did not mean they were cracking down on the hard sciences. In fact, they continued to build observatories and hospitals for studying medicine, and these things were separate. And we shouldn't just look at this one school system and say that this was the entirety of the um, Seljuk world. But I think it's more fair, however, to say that with the emphasis that the Seljuk rulers were putting on training Orthodox Sunni teachers. Remember, this is what you're trying to do here. These are not places like uh, the al Hikmah for the great minds to get together and, and hash out abstract ideas. This is a teacher training school where you're preparing to send out teachers to teach kids from the, the youngest age to the, the free schools in which El-Ghazali himself was taught. So, it's more fair to say that those who funded these schools and who provided the scholarships for students to go there free, uh, they were more interested in seeing that strict doctrine was taught. So, Al-Ghazali was not some obscure scholar locked away in an ivory tower. His position brought him into the court of the Seljuk rulers. And he frequently boasted of his close relationship to the sultan and to the vizier. Again, remember, this is not a humble guy. He was known for his lavish tastes and luxuries and fine clothes. And therefore, in that great environment where he really enjoyed this privileged position, and you have to know what the boss's priorities are, establishing religious orthodoxy and combating the heresies of the Shia were the priorities of the Seljuks. And by the year 1095, al-Ghazali was their man. So this really young, arrogant scholar fully exploited the position, at least for a while, as we see. And I think that is important to understand. If we're going to focus on the ideas of al-Ghazali, they don't come out of a vacuum. He is teaching and backing up the ideas that this realm, this regime, desperately wants to hear. I mean, they want to equip Sunni teachers and preachers to go out there and combat Shiism, and he is giving them the orthodoxy they need. Okay, so we've established the fact that al-Ghazali at a young age became the chief guardian and defender of Sunni orthodoxy in this Abbasid Seljuk state. Well, as such, he was responsible for the teaching in several disciplines, and these included Islamic law, the Quran, the Hadith, philosophy, logic, and the Arabic language, of course. Uh, He's not so much responsible for the teaching of mathematics, physics, and chemistry. Again, these are done uh, separately, and that's not really your issue. Your issue with the assassins and the Fatimids is not that you don't like uh, the chemistry they're teaching. You don't like the religious doctrine that they're teaching. But among all these disciplines, its philosophy is really the one that becomes the most contentious and for which Al-Ghazali will be the most... uh, responsible and controversial. And this is where the Sunnis felt that they were the most vulnerable, and so they really wanted him to concentrate. So the first thing is just to attack Shiite doctrine itself. As we talked about in an earlier episode, uh, the Sunni and Shia largely differed on the nature of religious authority. The Shia believed in a live, continuing spiritual authority that passed through the Prophet Uh, through Ali, who is the first Shi'ite imam, through the series of imams. And particularly, the Ismailis believe that the series of imams does not end, unlike uh, other sects of Shi'ism. This, of course, is anathema to the Sunnis and has been from the beginning. Remember, the Sunnis have Khalifs. These are successors to the prophet Muhammad, but they are not prophets themselves. They don't have this special spiritual relationship to God, and particularly in the Seljuk world where you have a sultan. I mean, this is not an imam. This is not someone who is receiving visions from God. And so this whole idea, the whole Shiite idea of the imam, is not only a heresy, but it's a heresy that very much threatens the whole basis of leadership in Sunni Islam so this is the one point that uh, Sunnis would spend most of their time attacking but in particular uh, Hassan al-Sabah the leader of the assassins has a specific theology that's known as Bataniya and this is based on the Arabic word Batin. Batin, in this case means the inner hidden meaning of Scripture is a point Opposed to the outward or the zahir, the appearance meaning, the Ismailis believe that only the Imam or his representative on earth could interpret this hidden meaning. And this idea of a hidden meaning uh, to scripture is a big part of Ismaili doctrine, but it is a very much a heresy to Sunnis. For Sunnis, revelation stops with the Prophet Muhammad. After that, we have only scholars who are trained in interpreting and studying the sources of Islamic doctrine and applying this. This is not based on being able to understand a a hidden, esoteric, mysterious meaning. To them, that is absolute mysticism, it's like sorcery, and that is heresy. Well, you could see that this would be a big issue that you would want to call your chief scholar, al-Ghazali, to combat. And as the dutiful official that he is, El Ghazali produced some rigorous refutations of El Bataniyah, and he also attacked the terrorist activity of the assassins. Of course, that's a bad thing. You can't have going on in your country. So again, it's extremely ironic that Dr. Tyson would show slides of the 9-11 attacks and then blame this on El Ghazali because this is a guy who was writing against the use of violence and terrorism as being un-Islamic. In any case, uh, that's one of the issues that we have with that video. Now, in terms of Islamic law, al-Ghazali, like the Seljuks, followed the Shafi school of Sunni law. As we discussed earlier, there are four main schools, but all of them are considered legitimate in, in Sunni Islam. And In fact, most Sunni seminaries teach all four. You have to learn all four of them. But these schools differ primarily in the prioritization of the sources of Islamic law. The Shafi school considers the Quran and the Hadith of the Prophet as the primary sources of law. Where these are unclear, and they are in many cases, it relies on the opinions of the early companions of the Prophet. Now, this is not radically different than what the other schools teach, except that the Shafi'i school does not consider istisan, and that is the personal preference of the the jurist. And literally, that word means to consider something good. Hassan is good. So, istisan is something you consider good. They don't consider that as a legitimate source of law. So, meaning, under other schools, if we look at the Quran, we look at the Hadith, we don't get a clear... um, decision on whether something is legitimate or not, and this happens a lot in the modern world. I mean, the Qur'an and the Hadith don't talk about Facebook or online dating or something like that. Well, in many schools we use the personal preference of the jurist, i.e. if, if the scriptures don't rule on this, what makes sense? What do you think is good? Uh, the Shafi school does not consider this legitimate. And the Shafi school was the main school of Islamic law in the Sunni world at the time. And this is the one which the Seljuks vigorously promoted throughout their domain. Now, when the Ottoman Turks come, and they will dominate the Middle East and the Islamic world, uh, they would replace Shafi law with Hanafi law. uh, And specifically, the reason they do that is because the Hanafi law does allow this istisan. Well, it's easy to see why the Shafi reasoning would appeal to the Seljuks at this time. Their goal was to focus legitimacy back to the center, to the established institutions. Remember this idea of Nizam, right? The guy running this whole thing calls himself the Nizam, the system. Their whole thing was establishing systems, establishing orthodoxy. Why? Because they came in at a time of, of chaos, at a time of disunity. And so they're stressing the importance of this. So they want to combat the rebellious, the esoteric, even the mystic authority claimed by the Ismailis. And so they're going to limit as much as they can the power and degree of individual interpretation and authority. In this regard, El Ghazali becomes an eloquent and systematic defender of Shafi law. Now you're starting to see, finally, after all this time, how we're getting to the reputation that al-Ghazali may have been the one who stifled a lot of creativity, because he is being the primary doctrinary writer for a regime that has come in at a time of chaos, at a time where what they see as heresies are being promoted everywhere, and so they are getting back to the system, back to orthodoxy, back to having everything established, and they find al-Ghazali is their man who can write this up in beautiful, eloquent, and well-researched format. Okay, so al-Ghazali, although he wrote hundreds of books, he's best known in the West, but not in the Muslim world, by the way, for his book, Tahafat al-Falsifa. Now, this word Tahafat means incoherence, and so this book is called The Incoherence of the Philosophers. So you can guess right from the start, this is not going to be a uh, wide embrace of philosophy, and particularly someone like Ibn Sina, who had come along and said basically reason and you know the brain, thinking, logic can explain everything. He says, really, the only reason we have religion and philosophy as separate things is that not everybody is capable of doing this high-level philosophy, right? Not everybody could sit under a tree and figure out how the world works, so we have to have revelation. We have to have prophets and miracles. But essentially, there is one truth. Truth is truth, and you can get to the same truth through philosophy, through logic, Then you can get to through religion. That is Ibn Sina's um, point. That's his main ideology. And you can guess that a book that is called The Incoherence of the Philosophers is definitely not championing that point of view. Now, just a second on this word, tahafat. Well, incoherence... Uh, That word actually means some different things in English. I mean, incoherence, when we first think of it, we think of someone who's babbling, like someone who is drunk or insane and is just rambling, what we would say, incoherently. We can't understand a word he's saying. The word can mean that, but remember what incoherence means. It doesn't cohere. Cohere means to gel. It doesn't come together. So when we say tahafut in the sense of incoherence, we're meaning it has gaps in it. It's not a complete uh, system. If you follow the train of logic, unlike what Ibn Sina says, if you use just pure logic, I mean, someone with no outside information whatsoever, if that person is smart enough and open enough, I mean, they can just use logic and look at the world, and they can figure out all the truth that's going on. There's only one truth. There's no religious truth versus philosophical truth versus scientific truth. What Al-Ghazali is saying, essentially, is, no, you can't do that. There are gaps. No matter how smart you are, and remember, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the world... Hey, I'm the smartest guy going, and I can tell you there are gaps in philosophy. It can't explain everything, and therefore, since it can't explain everything, you need religion, and you cannot substitute philosophy for religion. This is my 50-cent summary of Al-Ghazali. Now, of course, the book is much longer than that, much more complex, but that's basically what he's saying. This book is a stinging attack on primarily Greek philosophy, and it's said that he condemned philosophy in the Muslim world for centuries. That's not really true. What he did is he limited. He said, basically, there's limits to philosophy. Okay, you don't use philosophy for the stuff you need to use religion for. Okay, well, um, he, what's really significant about al-Ghazali, and I think a thing that is lost in al-Ghazali, uh, is that He is not writing as an outsider. He's writing as one from the inside. And we've seen these kind of critiques, like when someone who was raised in a certain environment and writes against it, someone who was raised to be a religious fundamentalist, and then they turn atheist, and they write as one who grew up in the system, or vice versa. He's not like one of these outsiders who's, you know, writing about something he doesn't really understand, like, oh my gosh, our kids are listening to rock music and it could le- uh, lead to dancing or something like that. That's not what he's doing. And this is a man who is highly trained in classical philosophy. In fact, in his biography, he seems to have plunged into it at an early age. One of his first major works was a summary of. Basically, all the philosophy as it existed in his time, which means really it was a summary of Ibn Sina, okay? And in that uh, summary, he's basically uh, positive when he's talking about it. So his supporters have tried to claim that he wrote that book, that summary of Ibn Sina, as a preparation for the incoherence. Like, basically, I'm going to study it, and then I'm going to knock it down. But most scholars dismiss this idea. It seems like in his early days, Al uh, ghazali was genuinely interested in studying the Greek philosophers, He went into them in great detail, Uh, he studied them, but he drew the conclusion that, okay, they don't have all the answers. There are some things for which we need religion. And that's essentially his point. His problem is not with philosophy per se, but rather he felt that the scholars of his day had become so enamored with philosophy that they neglected the study of Sunni doctrine in law. Remember, Ibn Sina is this guy that says, you know, if you're as smart as me and you understand philosophy as much as I do, you don't need all that other stuff. You can figure out the, the law and the doctrine. This is definitely not the position of al-Ghazali. In his preference to the incoherence, he says, quote, I have seen a group who, believing themselves in possession of a distinctness, from companions and peers, by virtue of a superior wit and intelligence, have rejected the Islamic duties regarding acts of worship, disdained religious rites pertaining to the offices of prayer, and the avoidance of prohibited things." End quote. And then he goes on to continue to uh, accuse them of failing in their belief and practices. I mean, he's definitely aiming this at Ibn Sina and uh, to the point where he will essentially say that Ibn Sina was, was not really a Muslim. Well, he goes on to say that the source of their unbelief is in their hearing of high sounding names like Socrates, Hippocrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and the likes End quote. So you see he's really taking them down. He's saying, these people think they're so smart. They've become so enamored with Greek philosophy, they think they have all the answers, and they don't. So he really doesn't like the arrogance of someone like Ibn Sina, although he himself is so, so arrogant. Remember, he wrote to the, the Seljuk sultan and basically said, I'm so brilliant, nobody can understand me. So he was not opposed to individual reasoning and logic, even in religious matters. In fact, he considered individual reasoning to be a duty or a fard. A fard in Arabic is something that is imposed upon you. You have to do that. Islamic law distinguishes, though, between different kinds of fard. There is a fard al-ayn. This is a duty that every person has to perform, like prayer, right? like fasting. Everyone has to do this. And a fard kifaya. This means somebody has to do it. All right? Not me, let somebody else do it. Well, al-Ghazali, whom we have seen, was not exactly the most humble individual in the world. He felt that the average person was just too simple-minded for religious speculation. Again, he sounds like Ibn Sina and a lot of people at this time. In fact, he thought that even most teachers and students were capable of little more than following the rules. Remember, he's in charge of a system, essentially, of teacher training. And he says, look, for most people, you just give them the lessons and tell them what to teach. Only the really gifted, those who have the appropriate akal, or intellect, could undertake such a duty. So what he's saying is that individual reasoning in religious matters is a duty, it's a fard, but it's a fard kefaya, meaning someone has to do it on behalf of the entire religious community, and you can guess who he thought that should be. And so he even thinks that some you know, respected philosophers, even someone a big name like Ibn Sina, even he doesn't get it, even he is seduced by this outside paganistic logic. So, we have to assume that the one person who is capable of doing this high-level reasoning is El Ghazali himself, and when we look at his works, that seems to be the case. He pretty much thinks, yeah, there's very few people this brilliant, and it's uh, me. Okay, well, he was also very concerned about the teaching of rhetoric and argumentation, and these are two things in which the Greeks excel. They're famous for these. Well, he didn't like this, and you can kind of understand where he's coming from here. He thought that the idea of winning an argument based on cleverness rather than truth was anathema to a religious scholar. We we can see the same thing in politics and other areas, that just because you're a great debater and you can convince people of things, that is not necessarily good if you're going to give them bad ideas. The point is for people to get the truth. Okay, well... Although uh, we have Dr. Tyson saying that um, al-Ghazali felt that math was the work of the devil, I mean, he never did that. He actually uh, was a very, very strong supporter of math, because something like math is very straightforward and logical. Okay, so what is it about this book that gets uh, such the reputation? Well, al-Ghazali, who of course is the, the great one great mind of his day in his own opinion, he is going to set out to show you that philosophy cannot answer all the questions. And again, he's going to do it from inside. He's going to give you an insider's view. So the incoherence is structured around 20 theological questions. There's 20 sections to this, and these are basic, essential theological questions. And in 17 of these, he finds that the philosophers have made logical errors. Now, trust me, no matter what language you read this in, I mean, it is really, really detailed and esoteric. I mean, you pretty much have to be a philosophy major to understand this. But that's the thing he's doing. He's not just saying Something like he is accused of, of saying, you know, philosophy's bad, science is bad, don't do it. He's saying, okay, I'm going to look at philosophy in detail and show you that there are logical errors. Okay, he uses issues like to logically prove the existence of God, to prove that there cannot logically be two gods, to prove that things have to be caused, and so forth and so forth. Okay. So on 17 of these, he sees just logical errors. On the remaining three issues, though, they have committed heresy. And he is going to go after the Mutazilites. Now remember, the Mutazilites were once the darlings of the Islamic philosophical world. They were so powerful that they even had the first inquisition was a Mutazilite inquisition. You had to agree with their ideas. Uh, Mutazilism is in in English, if you remember, is uh, traditionally translated as rationalism. Uh, Now it's considered a heresy itself, and El-Ghazali is a big part of that. The first, though, is that the Mutazilites believe in the eternity of the world. And this is, uh, we discussed this in the episode about them, but this is essential to Mutazilite belief. If they're going to believe that rationalism can do everything, part of it is that the world has to be eternal for various complicated reasons. I mean, if God just speaks uh, the world into existence, then that doesn't mean it's something that you could logically figure out from just using your brain. So obviously the world had to be there forever. In any case, El-Ghazali, who is an Asharite, remember the Asharis are the response to the Mutazilites, and Ishari philosophy is the, it's, pretty much, it's one of two accepted philosophies in the Sunni world today, but the, the other one is very similar to it. They believe that the world had a creation in a specific time and would end in a specific point in time. And so, therefore, saying that the world is eternal, that's a heresy. If you're saying it's been around forever and that God didn't create it, then that's that's bad. The second thing was their belief that God only knows universal truths, not particulars. Now, this was a direct application of Plato's theory of the forms, with the Asherites rejected. Meaning, yeah, God knows everything, but only in a general sense. The reason for this... Uh, it may sound like it's a, a bit blasphemous and it, it did seem completely blasphemous to Al-Ghazali in the Asherites. They assume God knows everything. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient, he knows everything. The problem for the Mutazilites in the rationalist is that if you said God knows everything before it happens, you get into some complete contradictions, things that don't make sense. Well, then if God is good and he knows everything that's happened, how come he allows some people to become unbelievers and, and, and then let them die and go to hell? So to say that God knows everything that's about to happen and he lets it happen anyways. When you apply strict logic to that, it runs into problems. And since the Mutazilites were all about logic, uh, they had to say, well, God only knows general universal truths. He doesn't know that such and such a person is going to be an unbeliever and that that person is going to die on a certain date. Uh, Again, for al-Ghazali and for the Asharites, who are interested primarily in defending doctrine, the idea that God knows everything is essential. That may conflict with your attempts to use logic to explain the world, but tough luck. The last was their denial of a bodily resurrection, meaning the Mottazilites did not believe that you are physically resurrected in the afterlife. Um, the uh, Asherites did, and I mean, this is significant because if you're going to be thrown into hell and tormented, it's a question, is is that just a metaphor? Or are you actually going to be burned in hell forever? And uh, the Asherites believed, yes, you do. Okay, so what Al-Ghazali is showing is that the Mutazilite position on these three issues is equal to heresy. But on the other 17 issues, he's just saying that they made some logical errors. So we're not seeing a blanket rejection of anything, really, from Al-Ghazali. He's saying that, you know, you can do philosophy and it's fine, but on these core essential areas, whether they go against your theory of rationalism or not, you just have to accept them, because this is what God says, and this is the way it is. But these are pretty narrow, and he definitely never touches, despite what Dr. Tyson claims, never touches the physical sciences, never touches the natural sciences. And in fact, uh, he actually expanded the teaching of them. But even al-Ghazali's philosophical claims did not go unchallenged. Uh, Probably the most influential philosopher from the Muslim world, on Europe, at least after Ibn Sina was a man called Ibn Rushd, or Averroes, as he's known in, in Latin, uh, and he was hugely important. He produced a rebuttal to al-Ghazali, a work uh, a century later, which is called Tahafat al right? the incoherence of the incoherence, and it's a obvious and very definite, intentional uh, take on al-Ghazali's work, and he shows that al-Ghazali is making logical errors in his analysis. And al-Ghazali's work becomes extremely influential, and it has a huge influence, particularly in Europe. So even if al-Ghazali had, let's say, uh, destroyed philosophy, which I don't think he did, a hundred years after him, there's a response that says, hey, it's okay to do it. So it's very hard to make the claim that this guy caused the downfall of Islamic science. But this is only the first half of the story. now. Don't worry, we're almost to the end of the podcast. But the rest of al-Ghazali's life is spent specifically in the study and the promotion of Sufism, this Islamic mysticism. As we said, his brother is one of the greatest uh, scholars on Sufism. And al-Ghazali, in his later years, really becomes a huge advocate of Sufism. Now, how did that impact this so-called closing of the Muslim mind, as a famous uh, book in the West calls it? Well, the effect is not what you might think. On the one hand, when we think about Sufism, it seems a pretty liberal thing because it allows for all sorts of different experiences and viewpoints, all sorts of arts and mystical experience. But in the eyes of many, by endorsing Sufism, which is this really mystical experience of God, you're further divorcing religion and reason you're saying that there's part of this religious experience that you cannot explain using strict logic. And therefore, philosophy and logic has its domain, but religion has its own domain. And this goes further to making this divide. So, having talked a lot about al-Ghazali, what is really the issue here? Why is he blamed for so much? Well, Many scholars on this have noted that the vast majority of scientific writing after al-Ghazali has not been studied, much less translated. Remember, we're not that far from the Crusades and then the Mongol invasion, which is going to destroy a lot of the manuscripts before they really have a time to be distributed. Uh, Jamil Raghab at MacDill University, he estimates that only 5% of the scientific writing after al-Ghazali has been examined in any language. And so therefore when we look at the science before al-Ghazali and the science after, we see a lot more writings on it because people haven't really studied what come after. it. Now the reason he sees is not so much the decline of Muslim science, but rather the rise of Western science. Up to this point, Pretty much, science in Europe is being borrowed wholesale from the Arabs. They're teaching using Arabic textbooks. But once we get past the so-called Dark Ages, and scholarship in Europe really takes off, there is less of a need to import it from the Arab world, and therefore to translate uh, it from the Arab world. And so there are far fewer documents in Europe that survive, and most of the ones that are left in the Muslim world end up being destroyed by the invasions that follow. This is probably a much bigger reason why we see a drop-off in Islamic science after al-Ghazali versus anything that he wrote. But hopefully, what we've demonstrated in this podcast is that The changing political conditions, which is being caused by the turmoil, particularly in the Sunni world, by the threats internal and external, by the desire to establish authority, and then by the huge and devastating invasions that are going to come after it, this is going to have a far more devastating impact. On the status of intellectualism and scientific production in the Muslim world. And to an extent, al-Ghazali is just writing what is required of his times. And so that's where we really have to look. And if al-Ghazali is quoted and used in those centuries that follow, the centuries of invasion and occupation and destruction, it is, as often happens, going to be him being misquoted and being used out of context to work against the idea of the spread of science and philosophy versus what he actually wrote. So, if there really is an impact on al-Ghazali in a negative way on the intellectual climate in the Muslim world, it's more for the way he has been used in the succeeding years and centuries than what he actually wrote. In a future episode, when we talk about Ibn Taymiyyah, who is that other very controversial fellow who's blamed essentially for the jihadist movement, it's definitely a case of the way he is taken out of context, misquoted and misused and misapplied that causes his reputation to come out. So, when we look at the final verdict... Is it true that everything was wonderful in the Muslim world and this guy, Al-Ghazali, comes out of nowhere with a book and then somebody puts the brakes on Islamic science and if it had not been for Al-Ghazali, everything would be wonderful? Well, clearly that is not the case. The better question to ask is, why did Al-Ghazali come along when he did? Why were his ideas popular when they were? And why did he have the impact that he did? The factors that gave him a ready audience and made him so popular and made people want to misquote him have more to do with the decline in Muslim science than the books he wrote. And those are the things we're going to talk about in the future. The huge impact that the Crusades and the Mongols are going to have over centuries. This is where we really have to look. So... Again, my apologies to all of you who are uh, diehard uh, Dr. Tyson fans. As I say again, I am a fan as well. I, I love what he did in science, but it shows how we can be somewhat blind to certain areas. We can be very nuanced in our understanding of some areas, but we tend to look at others in a very simplistic way, and hopefully that's not the way you look at the Muslim world and what has happened during the time of al-Ghazali. So thank you again for your kind attention, for your kind comments. We hope to see you again in the future. Shukran Jazilin wa mahal-salama.